Hello and welcome everybody to the Book of Jude. I'm so glad you take your time out to listen to me. That's crazy. But hello from all around the world. Hey, let's celebrate. Switzerland, welcome. Switzerland joined the Book of Jude. Uh, what are we, a clan? Are we a group? Are we, are we a family? Switzerland joined the family. Um, listen, Last time, a couple weeks ago, we were going through Genesis, the problem passages, and I talked about Melchizedek. I didn't do a very good job. Why? Because I have taught Melchizedek a lot. And I'm just, quite frankly, I'm just tired of teaching it. But that's not fair to the Book of Jude family. So uh, we're going to go into great detail on Melchizedek. And But before that, we're going to hit... Um, what is a Hebrew, basically. So uh, the first time Abram being called a Hebrew, or the first person, the first biblical record of anything. And so uh, we're going to get into... So listen, let me let me tell you everything that I got. So I got my study Bible. I got the commentary on Genesis. I got the uh, Zondervan Illustrated Bible Dictionary. I got uh, Theology for Today from... Uh, I got the big book of Bible difficulties. I have uh, gotquestions.org. I have so many um, resources that we're going to be quoting from and using today. So if you have any questions about which resources is what statements, just let me know and I'll gladly give them to you. Please don't ever think that uh, all of these words that I say are coming straight from my head because they're not. Um, people greater and smarter than uh than I have have taken the time and written books and articles and so forth so we just kind of uh, are blessed to have I'm blessed to have these resources and I and I'm humble to be able to share it with you so um get your bibles out get your pens your paper and we're still in genesis uh and let's uh let's get going here remember Jesus's words in Luke 24:44 these are my words which I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. We are talking about the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the entire Old Testament. However, the question of the authorship of Genesis has been the subject of debate for more than two centuries. Tradition ascribes the book of Moses, of course, but there's various views. One view in particular has various authors writing at widely diverse times in Israelite history. You may know it as J-E-D-P. You see possibly a different style, a different usage of the name of the divine name for God. In the development of the Israelite religion. But listen to me. The concept of Mosaic authorship. Which I hold. This does not indicate that Moses was the first to write every word of each account in the book of Genesis. It is generally understood today to mean that much of his work was a compilation. Many Historical accounts in Genesis predate Moses by great expanses of time. There is no reason why he could have could not have arranged these ancient accounts into the structure of the book. 
The patriarchal accounts that begin at Genesis 12.1 are of great importance to the theology of both Testaments. For they record the first formal statement of the promise to Abraham, the promise which later was put into the form of a covenant, and we'll see that in chapter 15, verses 12 to 21, guaranteed an inheritance to the people of God in all ages, it thus begins, or became rather, a formalized statement that was invested with the authority of the divine oath. Among the elements of this covenant are the promise that Abraham's descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. We see that in chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 15 of Genesis. The promise that Abraham would be the father of a great nation, 12 and 17. And the promise of Genesis, or, or of a Gentile inclusion in the blessings of the covenant, chapter 12, verse 3. When God gave the promise that Abraham would be the father of multitudes, that promise seemed unlikely to be fulfilled because, you know it, Abraham and his wife Sarah were well along in years. However, the integrity of the promise was maintained in the birth of Isaac. The Genesis uh, narrative set forth Abraham's faith as a um, the central element in his relationship with God. His faith was given concrete expression in his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac according to the word of God. Now the Genesis narratives give the least attention to Isaac and Isaac's story, but the promise is not absent from the account of his life as we see in Genesis 26. The narrative concerning Jacob also centers on the continuation of the promise, covenant, and the patriarchal line. The elements of the promise were reiterated to him when he was forced to flee his home because he had deceived his father. From Jacob we get the twelve tribes of Israel. When his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, he gave a name to the Hebrew tribes. A large portion of Genesis records the life of Joseph, Jacob's son by Rachel. Basic to this narrative is its recounting of the way in which the Hebrews came to reside, reside in the land of Egypt. It was due to a famine that was apparently widespread in Egypt and Canaan. Joseph had wisely provided for such emergencies, and Jacob and his sons came to Egypt to pasture their flocks. Joseph recognized his family, from whom he had been separated for many years, and settled them in the land of Egypt, Genesis 47. The narrative concerning Joseph provide uh, the historical background for the book of Exodus, which records the bondage of the Israelites in Egypt and their subsequent exodus from that land. These narratives also look back to the period of Egyptian bondage mentioned in the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 15, 13 to 14.
Alright, so if you've been following along in the past few weeks, we are still in Genesis 14. We're not going verse by verse, but what I want to do is point out some very cool things. So if you want to draw your attention to verse 13, so that's Genesis chapter 14 in verse 13. When then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew, stop. Now the story is going to continue to go, but I want to take this opportunity to point you to this very unique uh, title given to Abram. Now I know what you're thinking. Yes, Abram is a Hebrew. I get it. But do you understand this is the first time in, in the biblical record that someone, if of course it's Abram, who else would it be? But someone is given the title and, a, and that Hebrew is applied to them. Now we know foreigners would call the Israelites the Hebrews and, and even the Israelites would apply this to themselves in the presence of foreigners. We're the Hebrews, okay? But you got to understand, this is so cool. This is the first time that this started. And, and of course, once again, it's applied to Abram. So who are these Hebrews? The Hebrews are peoples descended from Abraham. The origin of the word Hebrew is thought to become to come from the proper name Eber, E-B-E-R. This is listed, of course, in Genesis 10, uh, verse 24, as the great-grandson of Shem and the ancestor of Abraham. Another trace, the original uh, root word, uh, back to the phrase from the other side, in that case, Hebrew would be a word designating an immigrant, which Abraham certainly was. Now today, a Hebrew is usually thought of as any member of the group of ancient people who traced their lineage from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, and that is how the Bible uses the term. In fact, Abraham is the first person called a Hebrew, and this was in Genesis 14, verse 13. After 400 years in Egypt, the Hebrews were recognizable as a distinct people group, Exodus chapter 1, verse 19. The Philistines in Canaan used the term Hebrews, 1 Samuel 29, verse 3. Jonah identified himself as a Hebrew in Jonah 1, 9. And hundreds of years later, Paul was still using the same identification, Philippians 3, 5. Abraham's grandson, Jacob's name, was changed to Israel in Genesis 35, 10. So, Jacob and his descendants could be called the first Israelites. Jacob's fourth son uh, was named Judah, and his descendants were called Judites or Judeans. Later, the name Judean was shortened to, you guessed it, Jew. So technically, Jews are Israelite Hebrews from the region of Judea. They come from Abraham, a Hebrew, and Jacob, an Israelite, through Judah, a Jew. Thus, strictly speaking, all Israelite Hebrews are not Jews. In the northern kingdom were the non-Jewish Hebrew Israelites, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through uh, ten of his sons. And in the southern kingdom were the Jewish Hebrew Israelites, descendants of Jacob's other two sons who lived in Judea. This represents a very narrow definition of terms. However, in common language, Jews, Israelites, and Hebrews are all words referring to God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tips for reading the Bible. 
read a passage of scripture repeatedly until you understand its theme, meaning the main truth of the passage. The books of the Bible were written many centuries ago for us to understand today what God was communicating then there are several gaps that need to be bridged. The language gap, the cultural gap, the geographical gap, and the historical gap. Proper interpretation, therefore, takes time and disciplined effort. All right, so who is this Melchizedek? Who is this strange priest king that we see? Genesis chapter 14 verse 18 and Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine now first of all Melchizedek king of Salem we're talking about Salem Jerusalem Jerusalem you know how it's spelled and if you say wait a minute it says Salem not Jerusalem I just want to point you to a another reference in the Bible uh, Psalm 76 um, you can start with verse 1. Uh, God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. Now, verse 2 says his tabernacle is in Salem. Okay, so this this is Jerusalem. So Melchizedek is a priest king mentioned in the three biblical books, Genesis 14, 18 to 20, Psalm 110, verse 4, and Hebrews, um, basically chapters 5 to 7, uh, you can start a little bit uh, towards the end of chapter 4 in Hebrews. And, and also, several non-biblical documents. So, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the writings of Philo. Uh, so, Melchizedek shows up. So, according to Genesis, Melchizedek went out to meet Abram. He presented Abraham with bread and wine and blessed him in the name of the God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek was evidently a monotheist and worshipped essentially the same God as Abram, who recognized him as a priest. That's very important to the story. The reference in Psalm 110 reads, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This psalm is a is of special interest because Jesus referred to it, Matthew 22, verses uh, 41 to 42, Mark chapter 12, 35 to 36, Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 42, and it is regarded as one of the messianic psalms, so a psalm about Christ. The the ideal ruler of the Hebrew nation would be one who combined in his person the role of both priest and king. So you see how this is coming together. The author of the letter to the Hebrews uses Melchizedek in his great argument showing Jesus Christ as the final and perfect revelation of God because in his person he is son and in his work he is priest. The author cites Psalm 110.4, indicating that Jesus' priesthood is of a different uh, order from the Levitical one. It is in the order of Melchizedek. So looking back on the history of his people, he comes to the conclusion that the Levitical priesthood proved to be a failure. Now, he was a priest of God Most High, and then he went on to bless Abraham. He, he blessed Abraham 
uh, of God Most High, Possessor of Heaven and Earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So, we have no background, we have no genealogy of Melchizedek, all right? Not not in this passage, we, we have nothing. So it's it's a strange uh, thing that this is. It's a story that's embedded, and we're we're left wondering why. So Melchizedek, which means righteous king, uh, and also he was the king priest over ancient Jerusalem. If we're going off the text, this this uh, this uh, allowed. This is one view. This allowed for a later revelation to. Use him, Melchizedek, of of a, of a type of Christ. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, his superior status in Abram's day is witnessed, number one, by the king of Sodom, the first to meet Abram returning in victory, deferring to Melchizedek before continuing with his, um, his request. And number two, by Abram without... Uh, basically accepting a blessing from him and also giving a tithe to him, all right? So when we say, when, when it says the priest of God most high, the, the, the word so, uh, sovereign Lord or the word that's used is El Elyon, E-L space, E-L-Y-O-N, El Elyon, uh, sovereign Lord, for God's name indicated that Melchizedek who used this title two times, worshipped, served, and represented no Canaanite deity, but the same one whom Abram also called Yahweh, El Elyon. So this is, we're seeing um, that this is a repre representative of God. Do you understand that um, it's important to know that this was, he? he's not, if Melchizedek is a real person, like just a man, uh, it's important to know that he is not um, honoring or worshiping a Canaanite deity. That's that's important. So here's how the views go. He's a real man, um, and we're going to see in later passages that he was a type of Christ. We're going to see phrases like in the order of Melchizedek. So the name, the name of God that he uses to bless Abram, El Elyon, God Most High, Sovereign Lord, associates the common title Elyon with the name of El. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is referred to El as El, or more frequently, Elohim. El is also the chief Canaanite god in Ugaric, uh, Ugaritic and Phoenician literature. So this title, this name, is used parallel to the Canaanite El, as well as Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal. You know that word. So since El Elyon could represent the designation of a Canaanite god, we have no reason to think of Melchizedek as a worshiper of Yahweh, or even as um, monotheistic. So his joint role as king and priest is common in the ancient Near East. Now, why do I say that? I want to exp I want us to expand our minds to open it up to everything I taught you. That is the uh, conservative uh, teaching of Melchizedek. I want to throw this monkey wrench in here and kind of make you think. And I'm just going to leave it at that. 
Um, everything we we know about Melchizedek, we can easily uh, create a teaching out of, but we have to know the the Canaanite culture, the Ugaritic, the Phoenician uh, culture, and that their god is El. And so there is more. I, let me just say this: I believe there is more than we know. Was it Christ? Christophany. Now, I've taught this many times, so I want you let's let's imagine when when I say could this be Christ? Uh, let's imagine we know what Jesus looked like when he was born and he grew up, and let's say we were one of the disciples, and we. So I'm not saying that whatever Jesus looked like and talk like and and his personality i'm not saying that that is melchizedek but what the view is, well, i'm not saying anything but the view is the second person in the trinity is melchizedek so any time we see the angel of the lord any time we see um something like you know like uh uh, uh who wrestled jacob wrestled wrestling with god um, it's the appearance of a man. Um, it is a man. Uh, it could be flesh and bones. It could just be, um, so it's the pre-incarnate Christ. So it's before, obviously this is Genesis. Be, so we're, so we're, we are talking about Jesus, but, uh, to help us understand it, uh, let's say I, well, this is what I, how I teach it. Second person in the Trinity is Melchizedek. Now, that's if you take that view, which is okay. You may take that view. There's, you know, this is not a foundational doctrine, okay? Uh, the safe or maybe the conservative view is what I just read to you. Uh, he was a man, and later we're going to see that he was a type of Christ, just like uh, Joseph was a real man, uh, a foreshadow, a type of Christ. Joshua, you know, uh, same, okay? But it's very mysterious, and, and I think, you know, why is it in here? I think it's drawing us closer and and deeper to pay attention when we're reading God's Word. We, we don't just want to read over stories and not and, and not really focus and it's and it's hard when you get into uh Leviticus and numbers it's really hard not to pay attention to the stories because you're getting a lot of uh laws or genealogies and numbers of course uh the census um but there's also stories uh in there in the midst and so we need to really pay attention so whatever whatever view uh, you take it's it's okay, but uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of clues, uh, the meaning of Melchizedek and the king of Salem and he's the God uh, he's the he's a priest of God Most High. Uh, these are all very specific um, titles and clues to who this person was. In my opinion, in my opinion. Now, I will also invite you to read Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, starting with chapter 5 and going to chapter 7. So chapter 5, 6, and 7, you are going to read a lot about the priesthood, 
uh, priesthood of Christ, but also this is another portion of Scripture where Melchizedek shows up. And so um, Hebrews 5, 6 is actually quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, you are a priest, in verse 4, the, the first time in the history of Israel when a king simultaneously served as high priest. Christ, a.k.a. the branch, as we see in Isaiah 4, 2, Jeremiah 23, Zechariah, he, the branch will build the temple at which the world will worship. Christ represents the final and foremost high priest in the history of Israel. In the order of Melchizedek, it says, this high priest could not be of Aaron's lineage in that he would not be eternal, uh, not be of Judah, not be a king, and not be of the new covenant. Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, served as the human priest slash king of Salem in Genesis chapter 14 and provides a picture of the order of Christ's priesthood. So using the two Old Testament references to Melchizedek, the Genesis 14 and the Psalm 110, chapter 7 in Hebrews explains to the uh, superiority of Christ's priesthood to that of this unique high priest who was a type of Christ in certain respects. So remember, I'm teaching from uh, one view as him, Melchizedek was a human man, uh, and but a type of Christ, such as Joseph, such as Joshua, you get the picture. So again, if you believe that this was a Christophany, that's okay too. That's okay too. Uh, chapter 7 is the focal point of the epistle to the Hebrews because of its detailed comparison of the priesthood of Christ and the Levitical high priesthood. So a summary of the account of Melchizedek from Genesis 14. It's so amazing that from you know Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and now we're here in Hebrews, and we don't know who the author is, okay, of Hebrews, but they he thought it was so important to record this and to go back to Genesis 14 and talk about the the order of Melchizedek, the order of the priesthood that lasts forever. I mean, it's it's incredible when you think about it. The Levitical priesthood was hereditary, but Melchizedek's was not. Do you do you know that? Because his parentage and origin was unknown. This because why? It was irrelevant to the priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7 for this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Verse 3, without father, without mother without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, 
he remains a priest forever. Now, we could go on and I can make a case that um, the Greek phrase, whose father and mother are not written in genealogies, no record existed of Melchizedek's birth or death. This is quite a contrast to the details of Aaron's death in Numbers 20. So, uh, made to be like, made to be like. This word is used nowhere else in the New Testament. The implications is that the resemblance to Christ rests upon the way Melchizedek's history is reported in the Old Testament, not upon Melchizedek himself. Melchizedek was not the pre-incarnate Christ, as some maintain, but was similar to Christ in that his priesthood was universal. So you see the study Bible uh, is coming from this view. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that you can read, you can have a study Bible and disagree with uh, some of the theology. You can read a commentary by an author. Um, what happens, we all do this. Even, even me speaking to you right now, I come into, when I open up my Bible, I already have a presupposition before I even start reading. We have this lens that we use. You have a different one than I do. We're two different people. We're from two different areas, two different families. And so if you have a study Bible, like I have a study Bible, and I don't agree with the eschatology of my study Bible. That doesn't mean I throw the study Bible away or I discard it. No, I, I take notes and I learn from it, and it's I, I want to always, always challenge you to hear others' views, hear other views, because you can only go strong. You don't want to be closed-minded when it comes to theology. I, you just can't. I, I, there's no room to be closed-minded when it comes to the study of God. Like if you grew up in one town with your family and you went to one church your entire life and now your kids are growing up in that church or, you know, whatever it is. And most people, you know, I, I know my family is the minority because we were in the army. We traveled around. We moved everywhere. We were in a lot of different churches. But most people might go to two or three different churches on a regular basis their entire lives. And if they're from a certain area or region, think about that. Think about the... uh similar theology that they may hear and come to believe. I mean, a lot of, when you talk about eschatology, uh, a lot of people believe, it's very popular to believe what you see in the Left Behind series and what you read in the Left Behind books, the the rapture, the people uh, disappearing and, you know, like, oh, well, of course everybody believes it. no. No, everyone does not believe that. In fact, most of the church fathers uh, didn't believe that at all. And one of the reasons is um, dispensationalism, the, the pre-trib rapture, you know, pre-millennial. Uh, uh, that was all, that became what, the 1800s? So that, that was not a popular view um, in the, in, for the early church fathers. Anyway, I let me let me back up here. So I just want to, if I read something, doesn't mean I agree with it. 
Doesn't mean I disagree with it. I'm just giving you different points, okay? And so there is an argument to be said about Melchizedek being a real person, having parents, um, but uh, and being a type of... But I could also make an argument for... Um, I mean, easily. I, I believe that the second person in the Trinity uh, revealed himself in the Old Testament. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to argue against that at all. Hebrews 7, 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? That's the question. So perfection, throughout Hebrews, this term refers to complete reconciliation with God and unhindered access to God, salvation. The Levitical system and its priesthood could not save anyone from their sins. So in Hebrews chapter 7, this section presents the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood to the Levitical one. And as you know, we're, what, he, what the author is doing is applying the order, um, the priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek to Christ uh, versus the Levitical priesthood that ended. So one lasting forever and one ending. As you know, we do not have, well, we don't even have a Jewish temple, but uh, we do not have, and we haven't for a very long time, had a Jewish priest making sacrifices in the temple as we read in the Old Testament. Since Christ is the Christian's high priest and he was of the tribe of Judah, not Levi, his priesthood is clearly beyond the law which was the authority for the Levitical priesthood. This is proof that the Mosaic law had been abrogated. The Levitical system was replaced by a new priest offering a new sacrifice under a new covenant. He abrogated the law by fulfilling and providing the perfection which the law could never accomplish. So we know without a shadow of a doubt that the Levitical priesthood was incapable of securing victory over sin and full communion with God. Thus, the ideal priest must belong to the order of Melchizedek. To the author, Christ was the fulfillment of this prophecy, for he came out of Judah, a tribe with no connection to the Levitical priesthood. While the claims of the old priesthood were based on genealogy, Christ's were displayed in his power and endless life. The claim of Jesus to be the real fulfillment of the psalmist's prophecy rested on the fact of his resurrection and the proof of it that gave life, that his life was indestructible. The psalmist had declared that the ideal high priest would be forever, and only one whose life could not be destroyed by death could be said to answer the psalmist's ideal, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the priesthood of Christ, a second anointed office appointed by God in the Old Testament, was that of the priest. His main function was to represent man before God. The job of Israel's high priest was to appear before God to make intercessions for the people. The priest was the one, only one, who offered the sacrifice upon the altar. 
Because God is a just but forgiving God, the priest could always tell the Jews that he was uh, representing God who would forgive them if they met his conditions. The priest was usually a channel of forgiveness while the prophet was usually a channel of judgment. The people would have chosen to see a priest over a prophet any day. So according to... Um, the concordance, according if uh, Strong's concordance is what I have. The priest was a person divinely appointed to transact with God on man's behalf. So he fulfilled his office first by offering sacrifice and secondly by making intercession. In both of these respects, Christ is priest. You see, Jesus is our great high priest. So the Bible teaches us he is able to Save us to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 As our high priest, um, Jesus is constantly interceding for us. He understands the problems we have and, and, and we also encounter in our life, having experienced uh, the same when he lived on earth. So, uh, for we have not a high priest who cannot be touched by with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 When we discuss the priesthood of Christ, we must rely heavily on the epistle to the Hebrews. Christ's high priesthood is made effectual by his own blood, and he entered once and for all into the holy place and has become the mediator of the new covenant. Christ is forever the representative of man in heaven. Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. Christ, by the sacrifice of himself, forever takes away sin and has consecrated himself the new and living way to God. Hebrews 10. He is the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews 12, 24. The entire epistle is steeped in the conception of Christ's priesthood. The priesthood of Jesus is superior in that other priests have died, whereas Christ liveth forever, Hebrews 7, 25. His priesthood is more secure in that God swore with an oath concerning it, Hebrews 7, 21. The Old Testament priests could only offer sacrifices that pointed to the complete offering for sin yet in the future. As Jesus hanged on Calvary, on the cross, he offered the final sacrifice for sin. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, Hebrews 10, 10. Let me just say this. I, I believe there is more here than we realize. And I, and I think um, everyone... Uh, can study God, right? Theology, the study of God. But it really takes, honestly, if you want to be called um, a theologian, or, or not a theologian, but a, a, a scholar in your field, I really think it takes uh, for someone to be a historian. So you, without knowing, without ever knowing uh, Ugaritic and Phoenician uh literature and uh, the Canaanite God of is L and and the the use of the the title El Elyon and we also know that uh, uh, God is called Elohim um, it's very interesting so we either have on top of all the theories that are just regular uh, church 
people, Christian theories, we also have this, that um, this person, Melchizedek, could have been, um, you know, he he might not be, uh, let's see, worshiping Yahweh, okay? But the writer of Genesis, the writer of the story, are they trying to tell us something else? Are we saying, is, is Abram coming back saying, we worship the God Most High, El Elyon, right? Uh, there's going to be um, a conflict. I can I can use an analogy of, um, as you know, I'm a hospital chaplain. Um, I serve and provide support to all peoples, all peoples that come, and so they're not all Christians. There's Hindu, there's Buddhists, there's um, Muslims and Jews and Mormons and Catholics and Charismatics and, you know, the Assembly of God and the, all these other religions, right? So when they ask me to pray, I pray for them. Now, um, I, re I remember a, a Hindu family asking me to pray. This happens a lot. Why? Well, Hindus have many gods, many gods. So, um, yes, chaplain, pray, pr let's pray to God, pray to your God and, you know, but do you understand when I pray, I know exactly who I'm praying to. I'm praying to the God of the Bible, the God, as we're going through Genesis, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who I'm praying to. And so whether they are praying to Yahweh or not, whether they realize it, whether they get it, quote-unquote, um, this might be one of those situations where uh, Abram is giving praise to, especially when he says, I'm not going to keep anything, I'm going to give you everything, I'm going to give you the tenth of the spoils, and, and less, less, I'm not going to take a, str a strap from a sandal because it's going to be all God's glory. So there might be more than we realize going on here, and that's why I love theology that's you have to be open to these types of scenarios to say wow there's wait a minute there's a canaanite god called l well there's something more here so uh whether you fall on wh whatever camp you decide to um set up your tent in it's okay to walk over to another person's camp and say okay so so explain to me what you believe again i always want to learn and so um I, and I I pray with a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people that tell me, oh, we're all praying to the same God, and we're all, you know, I welcome your prayers even though you're a Protestant Christian and I'm a Catholic Christian, or or you're a Protestant Christian and I'm a um, Buddhist. We, we all pray to the same God, so yeah, I welcome your prayers. Well, I don't agree with that, obviously, but... Um, I do pray, I'll pray for anyone at any time, and I know exactly who I'm praying to, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hello, Book of Jude. If you enjoy listening to the Book of Jude podcast, be sure to subscribe to a listening platform. Also, 
Head on over to Facebook, Book of Jude page, hit like and follow so you can get extra material. I post blogs and articles and just great information that I've collected over the years. Thank you for listening and supporting the Book of Jude. God bless. So we're going to shift gears um, and talk about, I. This is this is something very difficult to talk about, but uh, a few weeks ago I I spoke on Ravi Zacharias. Now, if you don't know, Ravi Zacharias have, has passed away, uh, but RZIM, his ministry, had put out the final report of the allegations against him. Now, by all means, if you want to read it, you can, but let me tell you, it is difficult. It is a difficult read because... Now, again, this is not tabloids, this is not speculation, this is actual, from his organization, um, this is the report. We're talking about someone that has been accused of sexual assault, abuse, and even rape. And so all of those titles are fitting to apply to him um, that he was guilty of these things. They, there were so many allegations and so many stories uh, that, you know, it's almost like you, of course, of course he's guilty. But um, these people did an investigation, RZIM hired uh, folks to do an investigation and they didn't even get to every person that was involved. And so I, I want to say this. Um, few weeks ago when I spoke about it, I, I talked about, you know, finding out that one of your, you know, someone you look up to, um, maybe, you know, their teachings that God has used them or God used their teaching to help you through X, Y, Z, right? Uh, and I use myself as an example. If you find out that I am, uh, that I was uh, living in sin, but something I said, and God used it to help you in some way. Um, I want to <laughs> let me make clear. I'll, I'll tell you right now. In the in you do. This is hard. If I don't, but if I had books on Robbie Zacharias, you know, Robbie Zacharias has he's done work on marriage and relationships and intimacy. After that report, if if I had any books. With Robbie Zacharias's name name on it, I would I would have thrown it in the trash. I got to be honest with you. Now I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying like I cannot, I couldn't pick up that book again and read it and not have, you know, everything everything from the report going through my mind. So maybe I don't know if that's something about me or if that's just a natural response. I, I know it's a natural response, but I don't know if you know, right or wrong. So let me go back and say, if God has used something he's done, his teaching to help you, let it be just that. Let it be what it is. Okay. Moving forward. And obviously we can't in this situation because he has passed away, but let's say he's, he has continued his ministry. Absolutely not. I would never listen to this man again. I do not, I do not have any uh, 
printed material, no books, anything from this man. But if I did, I would probably throw it away. I know, I know for a fact it would be in the trash. Um, I also, but the, I want to say, uh, any messages or anything God has used again, I, I quote, God can make a straight line out of a crooked stick any day of the week. And he does that with me. I mean, I, I am, there's nothing good about me, nothing good in me except for Christ. So anything I say that helps you, believe me, that's God, uh, making a straight line out of a crooked stick. Now, this man, this report, he he was a, an abuser. He committed sexual assault, and the rape, the word rape was used. So, uh, let me tell you why this this should hurt anyone to read this. I mean, it's very hard, but let me tell you why it's hurt me. My parents, I grew up with foster kids in and out of my home. My parents were foster parents. I was their only biological son, uh, the only biological child, okay? But um, I grew up in and out with foster kids uh, in the home, and I heard their stories, and I heard their um, hurt and their pain and their suffering, and and not to mention just uh, never having a, a safe place as far as like a permanent home, never having a stable parent or, you know, all the stories that you can imagine these children, children have went through from teenager to infant baby, you know. Um, so these stories will always be with me. Their experiences have will always be with me. And so when I hear something like this, it always triggers me and it always makes me think of these children that were assaulted, either physically, emotionally, but sexually assaulted, abused. Um, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And so uh, when I read uh, the report, it just it just filled my heart with pain. Uh, nothing like the the victims. So what? Why am I saying all this? The victims of Ravi Zacharias. We need to remember and vindicate these victims because when it all came out the first time, well, not all, when a little bit came out the first time um, and he was defending himself, this, you know, a lot of people looked away. You know, the the first victim, not the first victim, but the one, the first one that came out, everyone looked away. And so we need to do a better job as the body of Christ to look at these things um, for what they are. And so many times, so many times, um, we, you know, we can't take every allegation as gospel. We can't say, yep, that must be the truth. Obviously, it needs to go through the process, but someone who makes this claim and says, this person hurt me, we need to be the hands and feet of Christ and reach out. No matter how it ends up in the end, we still need to be the loving hands and feet of Christ and reach out with love. We cannot dismiss 
these any allegations at the time allegations we cannot dismiss allegations and say well I trust Robbie Zacharias over anything. If he said it didn't happen, it didn't happen. The, we cannot do that. I mean, we see plainly. This has happened too many times. We see plainly. We cannot do that. And so uh, all the victims we need to pray for. We need, And if you're personally involved with, with, with a victim, uh, please reach out. Be the hands and feet of Christ to them. That That's... That is what this report just reminded me of um, uh, reading through it. And so uh, this man, it seems this man up until his death defended his sin, defended himself. Therefore, he was living in sin. Therefore, it would um, appear that he was not a Christian, that he was merely an intellectual who who was uh, a king of apologetics for Christianity, <laughs> but never it seems that never he never had the the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That's what it seems. Now I'm not God. Uh, I don't know the last days of his life. I don't know you know what that entails. Okay, so no, I'm not saying A or B. I'm just saying that's what it appears. Um, this man had a wife, so I, my heart hurts for her. This man had children, uh, had a lot of people that trusted him, and a lot of pastors under him that were, you know, uh, the whole organ organization. I mean, he was a, this guy was a pro at hiding his sin and hiding um, what he, his his other life, I guess. But I say all that to say this. We are all sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. Um, we None of us deserve forgiveness. Uh, God is gracious in his forgiveness, um, who he chooses um, to forgive and love and reconcile. Um, the Holy Spirit regenerates. Uh, it just doesn't appear that it, that was the case with Robbie Zacharias, but... Let's pray for his wife, his family, his uh, organization that probably is going to be no more, um, all the people that would affect it. But uh, on the top of that list, I would like to let's remember the victims that we, we don't even know their names, most of them, all of them. We have no idea. He This guy was around the world. And we, well, let me, let, let's please remember them in prayer. Please um, if personally, let this be an application for us to physically reach out and help folks that are in this, um, in, in any walks in our, our lives around the world. And before, so let me say this, before anyone says, judge not, uh, uh, don't, don't diminish his ministry. Don't, you know, any of that thing, any of the, you know, um, What's the other one? I should go to him or his family in secret or something. Listen, forget all that. You can go back to previous episodes of the book of Jude, and, and I'll, I can squash all of that. I'm not going to go into it here. I just don't have the time. This man had a global ministry, and they his victims need to be vindicated. 
and so or vindicated. And so um, I just want to pray for them. Um, he is no longer living. God is his judge, absolutely. But um, according to the report, this man was uh, uh, a predator, a predator. And so um, pray, pray for restoration, pray for healing, pray for uh, spiritual healing, pray for um, a future for his victims that they can rest and come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and find peace and comfort, you know, and, and the, the, the help, the, the professional help uh, of counseling and uh, not just, not just spiritual um, help, not just um, everything that comes from God, but just the, the people around the world that are licensed counselors and, um, they can get receive uh, professional help as well because they need it. They have been through a traumatic experience, and and they need it. They need it. But uh, what we can do is pray for them and uh, let this be a reminder. Uh, if we uh, are, if we know someone that has gone through this, uh, that we can be a person of safety and refuge. And not just look the other way. Uh, and and yeah, so to all my foster parents out there, uh, thank you for what you do. To all the foster children, you know, you as an adult that might be listening to me and and saying, yeah, I was a I was in the foster care system. Uh, man, let me just let me just say that uh, you are in my my prayers and. Reach out to me if you if you need anything. Um, that that's that's hard. Uh, even though that I was the child um, of the foster parents, but I was not a foster kid. Um, let me say I still don't know. I can never imagine what you went through. I can never imagine what you went through. I just was closer to it than some, but I didn't go through it. So um, please, um, if there's anything I could ever do, but always know to, if you need a therapist, make sure you're going to a licensed professional counselor, a therapist, a psychologist, and if there's medications that need to be involved, obviously a, a psychiatrist. And so please make sure you get professional help spiritually. Um, Go, you know, seek out your local pastor um, for biblical help, for, for spiritual help. Um, and I'm always here. Please feel free to message me if there's anything I can do. And with that, we'll close this segment of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Man was directly created by God in his image and his likeness. Man was created free of sin with a rational nature, intelligence, volition, self-determination, and moral responsibility to God. God's intention in the creation of man was that man should glorify God, enjoy God's fellowship, live his life in the will of God, and by this accomplish God's purpose for man in the world. 
In Adam's sin of disobedience to the revealed will and word of God, man lost his innocence, incurred the, the penalty of spiritual and physical death, became subject to the wrath of God, and became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable to God apart from divine grace. With no powers to recover himself, man is hopelessly lost. Man's salvation is thereby wholly of God's grace through the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because all men were in Adam, a nature corrupted by Adam's sin has been transmitted to all men of all ages. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the only exception. All men are thus sinners by nature, by choice, and by divine declaration. Salvation is wholly of God by grace on the basis of the redemption of Jesus Christ, the merit of his shed blood, and not on the basis of human merit or works. And from time to time, I want to take off my theology hat and put on the chaplain hat and talk to you about your self-care your spiritual resiliency. So if you have the time, and if you allow me, uh, I want to share some very important information that could help you navigating yourself through this thing we call life. I was reading a blog from a psychiatrist, Dr. Brian Zachariah. Um, this is a, a blog about feeling burned out and four strategies to recharge your workday. I found it helpful, and uh, the chaplain in me wanted to share it with you. This is what he writes. In the 1970s, Dr. Herbert Frudenberger, not sure if I'm saying that right, but this man coined the term burnout to describe the consequences of severe stress, exhaustion, and combined physical symptoms. So, as COVID-19 has made its impact on a biological scale, the social implications are also becoming evident. Workplace reentry is becoming more common, and my patients often inquire about ways to deal with employment burnout. I emphasize the four C's. If you're feeling burnout, whether it's because you're burning the candle at both ends or just facing work from home, boredom, Applying these four principles can help kickstart your workday and your mindset. The first C, control. A sense of control is a key element that often gets lost in burnout. Most people relate that, uh, that lengthy hours and changes in scheduling promote a loss of control. This, is often, this often leads to a sense of cynicism, exhaustion, and a loss of productivity. Regaining control might seem difficult as workplace environments have altered with coronavirus safety parameters, uh, but it's quite the contrary. This is a perfect opportunity to organize your workflow, redecorate your workspace, move office spaces, if that's feasible, cut down on office work that is not related to your actual job responsibilities. You know, those people that just take on too much Often, a conversation with your supervisor about the latter is very helpful. Focusing on work that is actually your work will lead to productive outcomes. Building a new day-to-day -day routine will lead to an improved sense of control, a, co a confidence 
that goals are tangible and increase increase clarity. The next C is cognitive restructuring. Aside from the requirements that a person's career imposes, a common lament I notice is the personal standard that we set ourselves, we set for ourselves. This is a key time to start thinking anew. Beginning with a fresh new perspective can make a big impact, even while you're working the same job. This includes looking closely at prior patterns. Are you able to make appropriate workplace limits without being guilty? Or are you too often focused on excess uh, perfectionism? Part of cognitive restructuring involves looking at prior patterns of the workplace behavior like time management, interpersonal relationships with coworkers, and prior feedback you may have received. With this information in tow, you can embrace a new mentality and build an action plan. Professional therapists can help since they are trained to adequately assess internal uh, strengths and promote internal external resources that can be viable treat that can be a viable treatment tool. People often express a fear to speak to their supervisors about seeking mental health resources, but in reality, being transparent about your goals, weaknesses, and desire for self-improvement is often met with professional support. The next C, create. Burnout is described as an erosion of the soul. This means that in order for you to create again, you must allocate a new sense of enthusiasm. With the current social pandemic and changes in, in uh, workplace organization, this is the perfect opportunity for innovation. Speak with your supervisor or host uh, or host uh, creative huddles with coworkers to implement strategies that stand out. And this is uh, so you can be creative. Back to the block. Consider acquiring a new set, uh, new skill that makes you more marketable or an effective employee. Learning new skills or tools might create room for an advancement or lend to the more enriched resume for future opportunities. Creating new social networks is always a great way to look forward uh, to work. Uh, while the term is social distancing, <laughs> in reality, the emphasis is on physical distancing. So connecting with new coworkers and uh, forming healthy relationships can make going to work even if it's virtually, a new experience in itself. And also, the, or another C, and I believe it's the last C, is CARE, C-A-R-E, CARE. Uh, while it may not seem like a new method, focusing on self-care is a great way to improve internal well-being and, in turn, maximize your productivity. So meditation, for example, has been present for centuries and returns in various forms because it is highly effective method it is a highly effective method at reducing stress and anxiety it promotes a sense of self-awareness and uh and in the moment experience several smartphone apps can guide you through this meditation process some of which take but five minutes of your day so other care aspects, including focusing on building a schedule for after hours as well, uh, due to internet connectivity, we, are, we all know work often follows you home. So your time after work is just as pivotal. So take the time to recharge, 
focus on physical exercise and create healthy sleep patterns. This is a great time to reassess those new year resolutions uh, and turn them into mid-year resolutions. We're, we're kind of in between there. Uh, but he wrote this uh, last year, uh, July of last year, 2020. And he said, he continues, or to make new realistic wellness goals. A new, healthier version of yourself is a great mental image that can be powerful, can be a powerful uh, motivator. And again, that was a psychiatrist, Dr. Brian Zechariah. Self-care is very important. I struggle with self-care myself. Remember that self-care isn't selfish. If you've ever been on an airplane, you've heard the flight attendant say, if the oxygen masks come down, place a mask on yourself first before helping those around you. This applies to life as well. In order to be at our best, we need to take good care of our minds and bodies, especially during times of stress. It, it's important to prioritize our own needs and find time to relax and recharge. Now, I know most of us, if you're like me, find ourselves mostly at work. If you're at work, try to find some time to listen to music or an inspiring podcast on your commute to or from. That's exactly what I do. Uh, share a laugh with a colleague. You know, stop and take a moment. Uh, do some stretches. Take a moment to meditate or pray. Pack healthy snacks for work and then take time to enjoy them. Eat lunch outside of your work if possible. Uh, be sure to stay hydrated. Keep a favorite quote or a verse posted in your work area. Um, so when you when it helps you to, you know, you're, you find yourself being stressed, you can remind yourself of it, read it, stay centered. And um, you can read it as a pick-me-up, right? Talk to your manager if you do need a break. At my work, we have something called Take 5. You know, we're allowed to go and say, you know, I just, I just need five minutes. You might want to de-stress by talking to your colleagues who who are also uh, very stressed out. Uh, remember to smile, and remember it is always important to breathe. Now, outside of work, it's very different. You can do a multitude of things. You can read a book, magazine, meditate and pray. Uh, start a gratitude list. Write a few things down that you're grateful for every day. Watch a movie, get a massage, take a nature hike, exercise, whatever that means for you. You know, visit the gym, taking a walk, walk your dog. Uh, give yourself permission to put your rest and well-being before housework. Yeah, that's that might be tough, right? Uh, take take a nap <laughs> or a hot bath. I, I'm the king of taking naps. I can do that. I could do it right now if you if you dare me to. Drop some essential oils in your shower. I don't know what that means, but you might if you do, I guess that works. Buy flowers to brighten your space. Look at a photo, uh look at photos from your favorite vacation. That always puts a smile on my face. Get some get some sleep uh and be disciplined about bedtime. That's very important. Volunteer at a food bank or animal shelter. And spend time outside. Get outside. You need that sun. And there we have it. The priesthood of Christ. Melchizedek. Abram being called a Hebrew. And as always, look for articles, blogs on Facebook, Book of Jude. 
at Book of Tim Jude. Also, uh, I want you to know that you can always message us at Book of Jude and uh, give us prayer requests. Let us know where you're listening from, of course, but more importantly, prayer requests. Love to pray for you. And let us all remember, as we go out, make disciples. God bless. I believe that the Bible is God's written revelation to humans. The Word of God is verbally inspired in every word, inerrant in the original documents, infallible and God-breathed. The Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. God spoke in His written Word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's words to man, without error, in the whole or in the part. I believe there is but one living and true God, an infinite, all-knowing spirit, perfect in all of his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience. 